Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any crazier and just when you thought it couldn't become any more bizarre, another week goes by uh, in the world of pandemic news, political news, and pandemic politics. Uh, I read this week that one university in their uh, campus newspaper, they advised their student body that uh, to either uh, keep their masks on during sex or go home and take care of things yourself. And the school cared so much about the issue, they were actually going to publish uh, a manual on how to make the experience richer. And, and so that was, that was early in the week. And then it was the group of men who were arrested in Michigan uh, plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan uh, because they did not like her COVID politics. Because when you don't like someone's politics, uh, the thing that makes perfect sense is let's get together and shoot up the governor's house and take her uh, for ransom. And then there was accusations made against the former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, that she made up the whole Russian interference scandal in 2016 uh, to draw attention away from her email storyline. And then there was the governor of California who uh, asked people in his state to leave their masks on in the restaurant and to take them down only for a moment long enough to take a bite. And then President Trump announced that he was done with the next debate because he doesn't like the rules. And then the uh, House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, she announced that she's pursuing a commission uh, to uh, come underneath the banner of the 25th Amendment uh, in order that they might remove the president from power next term if indeed he is elected. And then of course, they're batting back and forth about spending money on the corona stimulus, money that we don't have, but we like to argue about how to spend it because we'll just borrow it. Uh, and so that's basically since last week. And uh, that's where we are. Now, before we get started, uh, give you a preview of the next couple of weeks. Uh, two weeks from today will be the weekend before the election. And so we're gonna talk about how to vote. And uh, hopefully you're ready to do that and registered. If not, uh, too late uh, next year, uh, maybe so. Uh, but we're gonna talk about that in two weeks, so that'll be a great week. But next week, uh, we're gonna try to drill down a little bit on maybe some of the curiosities that you've had. Maybe you have questions about some of the content we're talking about. Maybe you just have genuine, authentic questions about the world that we live in. Or maybe you've had somebody who asked you a question and you really didn't know how to respond to it. Or you've heard someone talk about something that you think would be something good for us to talk about. You can email us at ask at thecreekchurch.com. So you can just send that email, ask at thecreekchurch.com and just let us know uh, what the question is. And uh, next week, we're gonna try to drill down on some of your questions and some of your curiosities, all right? So now today, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week and we're gonna talk about the fact that politics are polarizing. And we all know that, but, but we need to be reminded of it because it's really central to what we're talking about in the series. Uh, politics are polarizing uh, because they're designed to be so. They divide us because that's how they are designed to be at their very core. Uh, politics tend to divide us on you know, one side of the aisle to the other because it forces us to choose a side. It's Republican, it's Democrat, it's liberal, it's conservative, it's right or left, it's red or blue, and it just goes on and on and on. But in American politics, because most of us here, most of us watching, we're Americans, and uh, here in American politics, when you choose a political side, you're also more times than not choosing a political tribe. 
And when it comes to political tribalism in this country, you are either for the tribe or you are against the tribe. And that's important because that explains some of the animosity that we have towards people who don't see things the way that we see them or how we get so frustrated and angry at the drop of a hat when somebody talks about a different perspective or how we see them as less than human or we think that they're the problem and we think that God ought to judge them. Uh, that's, that's all because of what politics does to us. It puts us in separate corners. And the ultimate goal of American political tribalism is for your tribe to win and all the other tribes to lose. That's the main point of political tribalism. That's the way our system is designed to work. Someone must win and everybody else must lose. So winning tends to be the most important thing. And, and this is why this is unfortunate, but necessary. When winning matters most, how one wins matters less. So in American politics, you can lie. You can just flat out lie. You can say it on Monday and lie about it on Wednesday. I never said that. Well, here's the clip. No, I never said that. That's not me. You know, you misunderstood. Well, here's the whole clip. No, no, that's not what I said. So you can just lie. You can lie about anybody. You can lie about anything. You can lie about your records. You can lie about how you voted when you were a senator. You can vote about what you did when you were a private citizen. Uh, you can misrepresent your view. You can misrepresent the view of somebody else. You can mischaracterize someone else's view. You can mischaracterize your view based on who you're talking to. Uh, you can label your opponent. You can stereotype them. You can insult them. Uh, you can even demon them and make them sound as though that Satan himself has given birth to this person, these people, and they must be defeated at all costs. And you can do that in American politics. And here's the thing that I've noticed. No one really seems to care. No one really seems to care except when the other side does it to somebody on their side. And then all of a sudden we're troubled. All of a sudden then we want to throw a flag and say, no, that's a foul. But that's where we are. American politics in the 21st century is a dirty business. And maybe that's why Mark Twain quipped that politicians and diapers must be changed often. And for the same reason. You got that, didn't you? I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't have to explain it. I came ready, but, I, but I'm glad we're all on the same page. So that's where we are. And so last week we talked about a prophet by the name of Jeremiah, because I think there's a lot that we can learn from him. Uh, he was a prophet of conviction and compassion. Uh, he was the uh, weeping prophet. So he, he was a guy who emotionally registered everything. Uh, some of you guys, you don't understand that because you emotionally register nothing. Uh, that's kind of where a lot of men see themselves. We, we don't emotionally register anything. Jeremiah, however, he, he, was, he was cut from a different cloth, a bit different. He emotionally registered everything. Or maybe we all emotionally register everything, but we just don't process it all the same. But Jeremiah, he emotionally registered everything. He felt the slightest tremor. Uh, when something happened in the royal family in Jerusalem, when something happened amongst the citizenry, when something happened over here, he felt that. He felt the emotion of that. So there's nothing wrong with feeling the emotion of what's going on around us. It's how we process it. It's how we deal with it. It's how we respond to it because he felt everything. He's a highly sensitive spirit, Jeremiah. But yet he was impervious. He had his moment and, and we talked about that last week and we'll refer to it one more time in just a moment. But he, he was impervious over the long haul. He, he didn't let everything that was going on get the best of him. And I think that's good advice for all of us. Don't let what's going on around us get the best of us. Uh, he lived in a day when chaos seemed to rule and all of culture seemed to devolve into some type of disastrous direction. So he kept on calling the people of God. He kept on calling the king and, and the court and all of the people of Israel to come back to God because if not, 
judgment was going to come. And, and they kept ignoring him, and they kept ignoring him, and they kept ignoring him. And finally, he had one of those moments, like some of us have had many, many times over the last election cycle. We just lose our cool. We say something we shouldn't say. We post something we shouldn't do. And, and you know, we just, we just throw a remote. We've broke four remotes since January, you know, and, and, and it's just, it's just, it goes really south all the time. And so Jeremiah had one of those moments when he complained about God. He wanted a bunch of people to die because he saw them as the problem. And then God kind of, you know, slapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, Jeremiah, if racing against mere men makes you tired, how are you going to race against the horses? If you stumble and fall on open ground, what are you going to do in the thickets near the Jordan? In other words, if racing against mere people, mere human beings, if the drama of human beings makes you want to quit, in the open field. How in the world are you gonna race against the horses when, when the stakes are higher and, and the problems are bigger? Uh, what are you gonna do? How are you gonna race against horses down there in the jungle near the Jordan River? How are you gonna do that? So this was God's way of saying, Jeremiah, you have hard work to do. This is God's way of reminding us, we have hard work to do. Uh, God never promised this Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus never said it's gonna be easy. So Jeremiah's message from God was, don't grow frustrated. Don't, don't be cynical. Don't get so angry and apathetic that you just decide, you know what, I'm out of this. I'm not gonna worry with it anymore. I'm just gonna disengage. I'm not gonna think about it. I'm not gonna read. I'm not gonna be a student. I'm not gonna ask questions. I'm just fed up with this. I'm just so chronically disappointed with everybody who claims to be our leaders. I'm chronically disappointed with this party. I'm chronically disappointed with that party. I'm just chronically disappointed with Congress. I'm chronically disappointed with the White House. I'm chronically disappointed with the judiciary. I'm just disappointed I'm done, I'm out. God would say, don't do that. You have a purpose. So don't miss your purpose by checking out. Don't, don't miss your purpose by quitting. Don't miss your purpose by stopping your race. And so this was what God was saying to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, this is hard work. You can't quit because there's work for you to do because things are devolving towards disaster. Uh, Lee Drutman wrote a uh, insightful piece that I thought was worth passing along because it, it really does parallel with Jeremiah's day and it certainly is our day. He said, American democracy, like all political systems, rests on norms. Remember those days of normalcy? Rules can only save us if they are agreed upon and respected. But for years now, we have been retreating into our separate tribal epistemologies, each with their own increasingly incompatible set of facts and first premises. We're entering a politics where the perceived stakes are higher and higher, thus people talk about the fate of our nation lies in the balance, that they justify increasingly extreme means. When it is a war of good versus evil, because isn't that what it is? I mean, you're a Republican. Of course the Democrats are evil. You're a Democrat. Of course the Republicans are evil. It's good versus evil. It's God versus Satan. I mean, what? You're saying it's not? He says, when it's a war of good versus evil, norms and fair play seem like quaint anachronisms or it's antiquated or it's from a day gone by. He says, the core problems is that the fundamental disagreement in our politics is now over what it means to be an American. He said, that, that's why the tension's so high. It's over what our nation's core values are. And he says, and that historically has always spelled trouble. And so then he gives the different perspectives. He said, okay, to the political left, Donald Trump is un-American. His xenophobic racist rhetoric stands in opposition to the true American vision of tolerance. It's an affront to our nation's immigrants, a country in which equality is written in our founding documents. Any Republican who supports or voted for him is guilty by association. And that's what the left would say about people on the right. And he says, to the political right, 
It's the Democrats who are un-American. They denigrate our founding as a Christian nation and want to secularize everything. They want to sacrifice our sovereignty to globalist institutions under the guise of invented problems like global warming and to undermine our exceptional heritage by opening up borders to anybody, even those who want to blow us up. There's only really one real America and it doesn't include the coast or the cities where Democrats live. He says, that's, that's how the people on the right talk. And then he goes on to say, we have now, we have two political parties with very different and increasingly irreconcilable ideas about what it means to be an American and perhaps more saliently, what it is to be un-American. And then the final sentence of his little piece is, this partisan divide is obviously deeply, obviously deeply problematic. Well, <laughs> no kidding Lee, uh, that is a problem. And it's a problem for Americans, but in this series, we're talking about why it's a problem for Jesus followers. Because the question is, what do we do when following Jesus puts us at odds with a political party? Now, if you're one of those folks, I hate to disappoint you, but if Jesus showed up in 21st century America, you're never gonna make me believe, nor do I think you could wage a worthy case of saying that Jesus would decide to be a Republican or that Jesus would decide to be a Democrat. I don't think that Jesus was identified as a libertarian. I don't think Jesus would even claim to be an independent, which is not so independent anymore. Uh, I think that Jesus would show up in the 21st century and do what Jesus has always done. And that's to make the power brokers of this world's political system uncomfortable. There's a reason why they killed Jesus. And there's a reason why they killed the first followers of Jesus. And it's not because they were spiritual. And it's not because they read the Bible. And it's not because they worshiped, it's because their ethic and it's because their values and it's because their worldview was threatening to the power brokers that ran the kingdoms of this world. The way of Jesus makes power brokers, people in power, it makes the people who love the kingdoms of this world very uncomfortable because his way is about trusting God. His way is about loving your neighbor, the neighbor that's like you, the neighbor that's unlike you, loving your powerless neighbor, your poor neighbor, your orphan neighbor, your widow neighbor, your outcasted neighbor, your unwanted neighbor. That's what Jesus calls us all to do. And then most offensive of all, perhaps for us Westerners, is that he calls those who have power and resources to leverage their power and resources for those who have neither power or resources. And when you start talking to people of affluence and you start talking to people who have power and people who have resources and you start challenging them and calling them to leverage their power, affluence and their resources for the sake of those who have none of those things, people get very uncomfortable. Matter of fact, so uncomfortable, they will persecute and kill you like they killed Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus, when he talks about loving your neighbors and your enemy and your persecutors, he's talking about the people on the other side of the aisle. He's talking about the person who's walking you to the place where they're gonna take your head off. He's talking about the person who's taking you in front of the firing squad. He's talking about the persecutor who's taking away your liberty. He's talking about the persecutor who hates your faith and believe it's despicable and thinks you're despicable for believing it. He says, that's the neighbor you're to love. That's the neighbor and enemy you're to bless. That's the one you're supposed to pray for. And Jesus not only taught that, but when we read in the gospels, Jesus demonstrated this. As Paul would say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that while we were passively resisting him and while we were actively opposing him, he was compelled by love and Jesus conquered death and Jesus conquered bad with good through sacrificial love. And he says, if you're going to conquer the bad of this world, if you're gonna conquer evil, it won't be through force, it won't be through legislation, it won't be through balloting, though those things are good and necessary, 
in independent cultures like ours. He says, but the way you're gonna overcome all of those things is the way that I overcame those things, which is through self-sacrificial love, which says, I will lay down my life for you. Even when you hate me, even when you oppose me, even when you vehemently disagree with me, that is the gospel of Christianity. That is the gospel that Jesus' followers have bought into that we say is good news. It has political implication to it. If not, it ceases to be the gospel. If the gospel does not impact us on every facet of our existence, something has become disconnected somewhere along the way. And so thus, as Jesus' followers, we take our cues for him from him. And that means that Jesus' followers should be the least offended and the most loving people in the world. Who are some of the most offendable people in the world and the least loving people in the world? People who get sucked into the political rules of the kingdom of this world. Uh, I, I read an article a few weeks ago and I can't remember exactly who read it, but I can see it on the page. But he talked about our intoxication in America. There's only one thing that we're really intoxicated with and it's being right. But there's another thing that equals to it. And the only thing that rivals our intoxication of wanting to be right is our intoxication of feeling wronged. We love feeling right, and at the same time, we love feeling wronged. So when we get sucked into the kingdoms of this world, we, we become easily offended. We become snap crazy. We just go crazy and go off on people, and we lose our temper. And we, we, people could do 95% of their life in the best way possible but because they thought this or did this or thought this or voted here. You write them completely off because you're offended by them, and you've ceased to love them. So Jesus followers, we should be the least offended and the most loving people in the world. And so when we side with Jesus, we side with the people he sided with like we talked about last week. And if any of the things that we stand for keeps us from standing with the people that Jesus stood with, then we've ceased to stand where Jesus stands. Now, that's easy to talk about and, and trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. I'm not up here as an expert. You already knew that. I'm not up here as someone who's got this figured out. You already knew that. I'm up here trying to find my way through the dark of all of this right alongside of you. So I am learning in real time with you. I, I am not claiming to have any high ground whatsoever. We're trying to figure this out on our own and it's not easy to do. I watched seven minutes the other night of a, of a cable news channel and I felt as though I, I, I'm not Catholic, but I needed a confessional box. I, I, I needed to like go just confess. I, I, I felt I wanted someone to die. I thought, God, just cut their tongue out right now. I, I mean, this is, this is horrible. I mean, I feel like I just wanna scratch my eyeballs out. And that was seven minutes. And then I stopped to think about some of you who are watching it for seven hours. And I think about some of our brothers and sisters out in the community who's watching it nonstop and I'm thinking, no wonder we feel like we do. No wonder this is the way it is. So this is not easy to do, but we have a lot that we can learn from good old Jerry, Jeremiah. He preached when no one seemed to care, no one seemed to listen. He had the ears of three kings, the last three kings of Judah, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. So he had the ear of the royal family and he, he was an influencer of the influencers. And so he was able to balance in between being a prophet of God, but yet having access to the most powerful people in the culture. So he wasn't so offensive and he wasn't so antagonistic and he wasn't such a poking of the bear type of guy that those people wanted nothing to do with him. No, he had an audience with the king. He was able to keep that door open. He was able to keep that relationship alive. 
but they didn't listen to him. And so the Babylonians, just like he predicted, they came to town and they invaded Jerusalem in three different waves. And you can read about it in the history books, but each time they came in, they destroyed a little bit more of the city and they would take away captives, the best and the brightest, people like Daniel, people like Ezekiel, people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you've heard of some of those. They were all taken as prisoners of war. They were taken as slaves back to Babylon. And so all of that happened. And when Babylon came in the third time, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the walls around the city and hardly anything was left standing and thousands were dead in the streets. And with that last invasion, hundreds of years of tradition, history and culture came crashing down. So thousands were carted off to Babylon. They were forced to march 700 or so miles across the desert until they got to modern day Iraq, Babylon. And so a little time later, Jeremiah, who was left behind because he wasn't considered important enough to be taken with the important people back to Babylon, he wrote a letter. Now, this is important. He wrote a letter. I mean, we actually have a copy of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote. He, he wrote a letter and he sent it by some of the royal emissaries. Uh, Zedekiah the king had sent some representatives to go do business in Babylon. And so Jeremiah had favor with a couple of those messengers, stuck a letter with one of them and said, take this to the captives and have it read to our people. And so this is part of the letter. He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Now. This word exile, if you're a note taker, if you make a mental note, this word exile is an important word in the scripture. It's an important theme in the scripture. It's important in the Old Testament. It's important in the New Testament. And we're introduced to it in the main storyline of the scripture from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, their home was where? The Garden of Eden. What happened when they disobeyed God? God kicked them out of their home. They left the Garden of Eden and they became exiles in a place that was not intended to be their ultimate home. So we see this replicating itself in the story of Abraham. We see this happening in the story of Joseph. We see this happening in the story of Israel. This is a theme that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Now to be an exile means that you are currently living in a land that is not your homeland. You're living in a land that's not your homeland. You're a foreigner in a foreign land. And this is a big deal because our sense of who we are is inextricably connected to place and to people. You have come to understand you. I have come to understand me. I have come to understand the world around me, how I see it, how I process it, my views, my positions, my, my ideas on policy or legislation and everything else. I have learned that through place and people. It was the place that I was born. It's the places that I've lived. It's the people who have been around me that have helped me to understand me, to see myself and to see everyone else the way that I see them. So it makes sense that if you grew up in another place with different people, you might see the world differently than someone else who grew up in a different place with different people. It explains why we have different perspectives because our place that we stand determines our perspective. And the people in our nation all came from different places once upon a time with different people. So it only goes to figure that there's gonna be different perspectives that we're gonna to have to learn to be able to tolerate, that we're gonna to have to learn to be able to have conversations about. This is just the way it is. So now they're living in a land that's not their land and everything that they have used to make sense of themselves and to make sense of the world around them, it is no more. That's why their departure was so emotional and so traumatic. 
They were forced to leave behind their city, their destroyed temple, what was left of their countrymen, and march across the desert. And over here in Babylon, over here in Babylon, there's no Jewish temple. Over here in Babylon, there's no priesthood. Over here in Babylon, there's no place, no altar, no, no sacrificial system. Over here in Babylon, it is completely different than what it was over here in Jerusalem. So they have been transplanted and now they don't really know how to make sense of anything. There's no Jewish king. There, there's no temple to try to keep Jewish law. They would find themselves in a situation where they're not quite sure how to see themselves anymore. They're not quite sure how to see the world around them. The customs are strange. The language is incomprehensible. Everything that's familiar is gone. And they live in a land where their values as the people of God, Jewish people, are in conflict with the values of the Babylonians. Their definitions of right and wrong as the Jewish nation is different than the definitions of right and wrong of those who have lived in Babylon their entire life. Jewish people were monotheists. Babylon, they worship many gods. And so the differences just keep going on and on. And I keep on pushing the point because there's something in here for us. They're in a place they didn't wanna be, but now they're having to try to figure out how do we live out our faith in Babylon? We have lived out our faith in Jerusalem our entire lives. Our entire lives, we've had a temple, we've had sacrifices, we've had a priesthood. Our entire life, we've lived out our faith like this. Now we're over here and there's none of that. So how do we live out our faith in Babylon? They realize things are not how it used to be. So what do we do with our faith in what is? What does it mean to be Jewish in Babylon? That was the big idea. And here's the question they were left asking. How do we live out our faith in this place at this time? How do we live out our faith in this place at this time? What does it look like to be Jewish in Babylon? What does it look like to be God's people among the people who are not God's people? What does it look like to be Jewish among Babylonians? What is our responsibility over here? Now that we don't have a temple, we don't have sacrifices, we don't have a priesthood, what is our responsibility here? How do we live out our faith in a brand new world? Everything has shifted, everything has changed. How do we live out our faith now? And so you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with us? Because this is the question. This is the question that all of us should be asking. How do we live out our faith in this place at this time? How do we live out our faith in America in 2020 as Jesus followers? What does it look like? Because in case you haven't been paying attention, things have shifted. Things don't look like they used to look when some of you were younger. Things have changed. By any measurable metric, things have changed as it relates to the religious climate in this country. We have ceased in the last 40 years of being what people refer to as a Christian nation, and now we are a post-Christian nation. Now there's going to be more non-Christians in the country than people who identify as Christian. So obviously, we should be asking the question, what does it look like to live out our faith in this place at this time? Their question should become ours. Definitely in the season that we're in. And, and for the record, we've not figured it out. I've not figured it out. We've not figured it out. The church hasn't figured it out because every number seems to be moving in the wrong direction. People are walking away from the church in droves. People look at the church and find it untrustworthy in mass numbers of people. So what does it look like to have faith in America in 2020 following Jesus? What does it look like? And so the New Testament not only uh, gives us great insight to this, but also picks up on the same theme of this, we're living in a foreign land. We are Jesus followers. 
We are part of the kingdom of God, living among the kingdoms that are not of God, the kingdoms of this world. So Peter, he uses this phrase exile as well. He said, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. He said, that's what you are. This is not your home. America is not your homeland. You're a Jesus follower. Yeah, you're a citizen. Uh, You love this country. We want the best for it. Obviously, those, those are all good and right things, but ultimately you are exiles here in America. This is not your home. This is not your homeland. Something has changed. You're not a part of this kingdom anymore. You're a part of the kingdom of God. Hebrews 11, uh, it refers to us as foreigners and strangers. He says, that's what great men and women of faith have realized over the centuries, that they are foreigners and strangers. Something about realizing this is not my home that causes me to figure out how to live out my faith. Paul said it this way. He says, we are citizens of heaven. So we have dual citizenship and one of those citizenships matters more than the other. It matters more that I'm a citizen of heaven, more that, I'm, more that I'm a citizen of God's kingdom than it does that I'm a citizen of this country. Though both matter, one matters extensively more. So the New Testament just keeps on throwing this at us over and over again. You're in the kingdom of God, living among the kingdoms of this world. So how do you live out your faith? How do you live according to the ethic and the values of the kingdom of God amongst the kingdoms of this world? Or in Jeremiah's case, how do you live as Jewish in Babylon. And so Jeremiah answers the question, and this is what he says. It's fascinating. It's great. This is, this is relevant as, as tomorrow's news. He says, so here's what you need to do. This is what God says to do in Babylon. This is how you live out your faith in Babylon. Build homes and plan to stay. In other words, this is not going to be a camping trip. You're going to be here for a while. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Now, some of the prophets were telling the people, oh, you're just going to be here for a short while. You know, don't, don't settle down. God's going to deliver. God's going to rescue. You know, just it could happen any day. Jeremiah says, don't listen to those people. They don't know what they're talking about. Build houses, plan to stay, plant some gardens, eat the food they produce. He says, don't concern yourselves with what used to be. Just stop whining over Jerusalem. Stop mourning over Jerusalem. Hey, that's spilt milk. You can't go back. You can't go back to Jerusalem. That bridge, it has been burned. It is over, Rover. Just plant a house, plant a garden, and plan to stay. God has planted you in Babylon, so let your roots go deep and produce fruit where you are. Make the most of it. Even though it's not where you wanna be and it's not how you want it to be, make the most of it. Now, building a house, if you've ever built a house, and planting a garden, I've never planted a garden, but I did plant some rosemary uh, this year, and it turned out great. It really did. It was amazing. And, and so uh, it, I figured out it's hard to kill rosemary. Uh, I forgot that I planted rosemary and went out two months later, and it's still there. It, the rosemary was, was, very, was very, uh, very strong. Uh, so uh, plant a garden, build a house. He said both of those things are forward-looking projects. And there's something energizing about thinking about the future. There's something that's inspiring when you think about the future. You live in the present, but, but you think about the future. You think about what could be. And boy, you get an idea of that and you can see that. And it's so clear and it's, it's invigorating and it, it brings life. And he says, that's what I need you to do. I need you to build some houses, plant some gardens and forget what's happened. Stay where you are, but plan to stay for the long haul. Don't worry about the good old days because the good old days are gone. Don't do that. Be a faithful, productive member of the economy. Participate in the systems of Babylon. Participate in culture. Make things beautiful, make things better. Build houses, plan to stay, 
build gardens or plant gardens and eat from them. Get your hands dirty in Babylonian soil. You're not too good to get your hands dirty in Babylonian soil, you Jewish men and women. You're not to go into monasteries and isolate yourself and put yourself in a social bubble and say, oh, we're, we're gonna buy just a bunch of property and we're gonna stay away from everybody and we're gonna form our own little thing. And he said, no, don't do that. Get your hands dirty in the Babylonian soil and stop whining and start working. That's what he's saying. And he, it's not what they wanted to hear, it's what they needed to hear. So his advice was this, get over the past, be present in the present and work for a better future. I think Jeremiah would say the same thing to us. 2020 in America, Republican, Democrat, wherever you are, you feel it, you're bothered by it, you're trying to make sense of all of it. Get over the past. We're not living in the 60s anymore. It's not the 50s. Leave it to Beaver, June and Ward. Hey, no longer. That world is over. It has ended. We're not living in the colonies anymore. We're not living in the 1800s anymore. We're not living in the 1900s anymore. We are right now, 2020, this is where we are. So he's saying, get over the past. Quit, quit wondering and hoping to go back to something. He said, no, be where you are so that you can go forward. You're spending so much of your time thinking about the world we used to have or the America that used to be, or maybe even the America that never was, that you've just stopped doing anything. Your hands aren't dirty in Babylonian soil. You're sitting over here waiting for something that's never gonna happen. It's like, okay. So Jeremiah said, I'm not finished. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away. He says, stop thinking about your personal deal. Start thinking about a generational deal. He says, you're gonna be there for a while. Some of you, you're never gonna see Jerusalem again. It's not gonna happen in your day. So go ahead. Have some children, get some grandchildren, get some great-grandchildren. Live it up. Mingle with those Babylonians. You're not better than them. Yeah, you're God's people, but you're not better than them. You mingle with them because they're created in the image of God. So you mingle, you build relationships. You don't compromise, but you don't revolt. You build friendships. Some of your best friends are gonna be Babylonians. Some of your kids are gonna marry Babylon. It's the way it's gonna be. And they're gonna go back one day home, but it's not gonna happen in your day, so go ahead. This is what you're supposed to do. Live life. Build lives with texture and depth and richness and love. And he just keeps on saying all this stuff. He says, if you want to see God at work in Babylon, this is it. Jeremiah doesn't sound spiritual. Well, I'm telling you this is what you're supposed to do because then he keeps building. He said, this is how you live in a land that's not your homeland. This is how you live as an exile. He says, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city. This is where he's been trying to get to the whole time. Where I sent you into exile, pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Now, lest we move on too fast, this was revolutionary. This was ahead of its time. He says, you're not in Babylon to protest. You are not there to rage against the Babylonian machine. God has not called you to be prophets to Babylon. They're Babylonians. They're gonna act like, wait for it, Babylonians. So quit expecting Babylonians to act Jewish. They're not Jewish. So you're not over there to stand against them. You're not over there to call them out, to point out their paganness. No, he said, no, that's, that's, that's not how you're gonna do it. That's not how you're gonna live out your faith at this point, at this time. He said, let me tell you how you're gonna do it. You're gonna work for peace and you're gonna work for prosperity of that city. Hold on, Jerry. <laughs> this city just destroyed our city. Yep. What's your point? You want us to work for the peace and the prosperity of the city that just killed our city? Yes. 
I want you to pursue peace, or as the Hebrew word would be, shalom. Shalom, a culture that's pulsing with purpose, Eugene Peterson would say, that's surging with transformational love. Another person defined it this way, it's harmony, it's fruitfulness, it's abundance, it's wholeness, it's beauty, it's joy, it's well-being. Pursue that for the city where you are. Because as it prospers, what? You will prosper. You pursue the good of the land, though it's not your homeland, the land that you're in right now. You pursue good for it and seek prosperity and peace because as peace and prosperity goes for the city of Babylon, so peace and prosperity will go for you. God says, I have nothing with you having peace and prosperity. I just want you to seek it for them too. The word politic comes from a Greek word, polis, which is where the word city comes from. He says, I want you to seek prosperity and peace for the city. That's, that's the origination of the word politic, that we are seeking the good of the city, what is good for the city and for the people of the city. He says, so here's what you should do. You should be voices of peace. You should be people who diffuse conflict rather than ignite it. You ought to be the presence of calm and collectedness. You should be measured you should be thoughtful. You should be informed. You should have opinions, but you should be wise enough to know how to speak them and to know who to speak them and when to speak them. Seek peace and prosperity. It's gonna be subversive. Nebuchadnezzar's not gonna give you his throne, so you're gonna have to get it done somehow. Belshazzar, when he takes over in a little while, he's not gonna give you his throne, so you're gonna have to figure it out. Artaxerxes is not gonna give you a seat at the table, but you're gonna have to figure it out. So be the presence of peace. Isn't that maybe what the church in America needs to be right now, the voice of peace? The, the sense of calm, we're collected, we're not, we're not getting sucked into this. We, we can diffuse the conflict. We can bring sensitivity and sensibility to the conversation. We're there to build bridges among people who don't even agree and don't even like each other. We're there to build relationships in both directions and we can't do that over here, over here. We have to do it kind of out here in the middle of things, outside the tribe. We have conversations, we learn. The Jewish people can learn some things from Babylon. They're gonna learn some things from Babylon. It's gonna be highly formative for them in the years to come. So Jeremiah would say, drop us versus them thinking. They're no longer your enemy. They were but things have changed. Living out your faith, it's different now. Before they invaded, yep, enemy's coming. Now, they're your neighbor. So pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for Babylon, that God would bless it. God, do you know what they're doing in Babylon? Do you know some of the immoral, the, just know some of the godless things and you want us to pray for God to bless Babylon? Yes, that's what I want you to do. I think we've never heard this before. And he's thinking exactly. And then he uses the future to motivate them. And this is where we kind of wrap it up today. He said, this is what the Lord says. You're gonna be in Babylon for 70 years, but I will come and do for you all the good things I promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. He says, this is not the end of the story. But for now, at this moment, in this time, this is what it looks like for you to live out your faith. So don't forget that. So what does it look like for us to run with the horses 2020 in America? And again, I don't have a market on this and I don't have the corner on this, but here's what I think we learn about this text and I'll just leave you with a couple thoughts and let you wrestle with it. I think we learn to get involved. 
Get involved because advancement requires involvement. Don't armchair quarterback. Vote, you should vote. That, that's a, one of the ways you love your neighbor is to vote. Be involved in the process. But just don't let your vote be an abdication of responsibility. I voted, I did my part. No, there's far more than you could do. Be involved. Find ways to get involved in the community, in your state, to make the world better, to make your community better. The scripture's full of people who were involved in the political process. Deborah was a judge of Israel. Joseph was a prime minister in Egypt. Uh, Daniel's gonna serve under two different world leaders. Nehemiah's gonna be a cupbearer to one of the most influential kings of ancient history. So for some of you, you gotta find a way to get involved. Some of you are so intelligent. You're so insightful, you're so charming, you're so winsome. You've got a story, you see things, you've got insight, you've got experience. For some of you, you need to seriously consider running for an office. You need to get involved. For some of you, that may mean a state politic race, that may be local, that may be a school board, that may be a PTA, that may be something, I don't even know, but find a way to get involved. Maybe for some of you, it's coach a team. And by coaching that team, you're instilling character in some young men and young women and you're making the city stronger. You're seeking peace and prosperity. You're building a business, you're employing people, you're treating them well and you're paying them fair wages. And in doing so, you're seeking the peace and the prosperity of your city. And in doing so, you're furthering the purpose of God in this world. So find a way to get involved because your involvement will lead to, an advance, to advancement. Second thing, be kind. Hospitality trumps hostility. Insults never influence. I don't care which of our political leaders model that. Probably all of them model what not to do. Hostility does not outpace hospitality. Inviting someone in your life may be the means that God invites them into the kingdom of God. So build bridges, not barriers. Reach out, take initiative, build relationships. Don't build walls, R build bridges with people. The people that you disagree with the most, they ought to have a seat at your table. Be cooperative, seek common ground with people in order to pursue common good. There are certain things that the values and the ideals of our nation overlap in some degrees with the ideals of the kingdom of God because what's good for people is good and what's best for people is best. So we pursue ideals like equality and equity and liberty and justice and mercy and life and dignity. We do that, we pursue that because that's good for everybody. And when it's good for everybody, it is good for us. Stay balanced. Don't forfeit the balance between your convictions and compassion. Don't get out of whack with it. Don't forfeit conviction for compassion, nor vice versa. And this is gonna keep you open to realizing you might be wrong and somebody else might be right because in two weeks, we're gonna talk about big government versus small government. And we're, the scripture has a lot to say about it. It's gonna be very interesting and uncomfortable, so you may not wanna come, but you should. You, you can be open about those things. You're balanced with your conviction and your compassion. You can listen, but then you can, you can speak. Think long-term. It's not personal as much as it is generational. Uh, don't mess things up today because God may be up to something tomorrow. In other words, don't burn a bridge. Don't burn a bridge today that God may want someone else to use tomorrow. Don't burn a relational bridge, financial bridge. Don't, don't burn your influence. And then finally, this is where we wrap it up. This is it, this is it. So you said that three sides ago. I know, I lied, I'm sorry. Love freely and live fully. Bring life to life wherever you are. That's, that's what he was saying to them. So that sounds as the least spiritual thing I've, I've really ever heard. That could be anything. Well, 
It's Jeremiah 29. He, he says, I want you to love freely in Babylon. I want you to love all of your neighbors. And this is an echo of what Jesus is gonna say in the New Testament, that the most important thing you can do is love your neighbor. Jeremiah's gonna tell him in Jeremiah 29, you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And if you're having a hard time finding God, here's what Jesus would say and here's what Jeremiah would say. If you're having a hard time finding God, go find your neighbor and love them and God will meet you there. You love your neighbor because when you love, it brings life to life. I wonder if Lazarus, he didn't even realize he was dead until he was alive again. Some of you, you're just dead. There's, there's no love and no life in there. And the moment that you feel love and the moment that you sense love, there's just something that's like, where did that come from? What was that? Because when you begin to love those around you, it brings life to life. In Babylon, they're gonna discover God wasn't looking for sacrifices. God was looking for mercy. He was looking for love. He was looking for them to live out the ethics of God's kingdom among the kingdoms that were not of this world. And for us, he wants us to pray, God, your kingdom come, that kingdom come. There's a reason we're for the things we're for as Jesus followers. There's a reason we're for love over lovelessness and truth over lies and peace over conflict and humility over arrogance and selflessness over selfishness and joy over sorrow and war over peace and justice over injustice and freedom over slavery and health over disease. There's a reason we're for those things. And we're for those things because all of those things are a glimpse of the kingdom of God to come. When you read through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find moments in time when the end of the age intrudes upon the present. When the future kingdom of God in all of its reality invades the present moment. When you read about stories of healing, a story of forgiveness, a story of reconciliation or celebration about a prodigal who's come home. When you read stories about generosity or compassion or peace or self-sacrificing love or life over death, or you see among Jesus' disciples a right-wing radical sitting down with a left-wing radical, it is a foreshadowing. It is a preview of the reconciliation of all things that is to happen in the kingdom of God in the new world to come. And he says, live now among the kingdoms of this world and bring the kingdom of God closer because every time you bring the kingdom of God closer, the world gets just a little better. So you enjoy life and you live it fully and you love freely and you enjoy the people in your life and you enjoy the creation around you and you pursue the peace and the prosperity of this place, of Laurel, London, of Pulaski, Somerset, of Williamsburg, Whitley and all the surrounding areas. God, give us Kentucky. We seek the peace and the prosperity of this place at this time because it's one of the ways we live out our faith. And in doing so, it is salt and it is light and it is attraction to the lifeless, loveless culture around us. If you read through history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present were just those who thought of the next. The conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built upon the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade and left their mark on this world precisely because their minds were occupied with the world to come. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. If you wanna know how to live today, look to the kingdom of God tomorrow and what the kingdom of God is gonna to be like tomorrow.
that final tomorrow. Make it as much of a reality in your life and around your life as you can today. Because in doing so, that's how you live out your faith at this time and in this place. Heavenly Father, ancient words with modern application. Words that were penned 600 years before Jesus would show up on the planet. So I pray that we wrestle with it, figure out what it means, what you may be calling us to do as individuals, as citizens, as followers of Jesus, and to not be afraid of it, to not be intimidated by it, to step out and to be involved. And I pray you'd show each of us what that looks like in our own life. In Jesus' name.